From WPVMLP in Asheville, you found the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour. I'm Lexi Harvey. And I'm Jonathan Ammons, and this is The Cleaners from Venus.
Spoon Radio Hour is made possible by our underwriter, The Marketplace Restaurant. Serving Asheville for over 40 years, The Marketplace is Asheville's original farm-to-table restaurant. 
The marketplace strives to bring you the best of what our region has to offer, farmed by our neighbors. For more information on our underwriters or to support us yourself by subscribing to our Patreon, visit dirty-spoon.com. Food is a crucial part of the dating scene and relationships. Think about it. If your first date isn't to a restaurant, your second likely will be. And it makes sense, because how someone eats tells you a lot about them. It can tell us where they're from, how they grew up, and sometimes if they grew up. Come on, we've all known someone who still tries to order from the kids' menu at a restaurant that doesn't have one. And once we are in relationships, food becomes a way of nurturing one another, learning to cook their favorite foods for special occasions, what makes them feel cozy when they're under the weather, or even just knowing how crunchy they like their toast in the mornings, become intimate ways of showing someone how much we care. So shouldn't we get the same care and attention from ourselves as we pay to our partners and prospective partners? Writer Jamie Burke found out for herself when she started diving into her Filipino food heritage, a cuisine she'd long avoided. Here's Emery Trantham reading her story, The way to a man's heart is his stomach, but what about mine? Ask me to make a Russian borscht and I'll raise my purple stained hands up in the air. Irish Guinness stew? One can for me, one for the pot. Dutch hagelslag on toast? You had me at hello. But Filipino food? Sure, I've eaten it my entire life, yet I've never cooked it. Growing up in a house with my Lola, grandma, Lolo, grandpa, mom, Ate, older sister, three Titos, uncles, one Tita, aunt, and my cousin, I never really worried about where my next meal would come from because it was always just there. Chicken adobo, pork menudo, fried tilapia, the dreaded dinu guan, a stew consisting of various offal and a bed of pork blood. My Lola, without fail, had dinner ready for all of us every single night. But all I wanted to eat as a child was pizza pops, pepperoni and bacon, or if I was lucky that week, three meat s'mores, pop-tarts, and chocolate milk. I would enjoy a bowl of champarado, a chocolate rice porridge. Evaporated milk was optional, but it would pale in comparison to the cinnamon toast crunch that I longed for. The first meal I ever cooked by myself was when I was 12 years old and made a hobbit's breakfast inspired by Pippin from Lord of the Rings, consisting of soggy, undercooked bacon and frozen pierogies. I did have one responsibility in the kitchen, though, and arguably the most important one in a Filipino household, cooking the rice. My Lolo had taught me the way. Wash the rice until the water runs clear, put the rice in the cooker in an even layer, then cover with water. How much? You touch the surface of the rice, and as soon as the water reaches the line of your second knuckle, you've got it. I wonder what he would think if he saw me measuring three and a half cups of water for every two cups of rice today. Why did I run away from the cuisine of my culture? What was so wrong with Filipino food? Let's blame Hugh Grant. Notting Hill was, and still is, one of my favorite films. A classic love story between the soft-spoken bookstore owner William Thacker and the effervescent Anna Scott, otherwise known as Julia Roberts. Not once did Hugh Grant's character eat a bowl of rice. My crushes growing up varied, but they all had common characteristics. They were cute, had tousled hair, and were undeniably white. Josh Hartnett, Orlando Bloom, any boy on the cover of J14 magazine that month. There were never any Asian boys on the cover of J14 magazine at the time. 
my dating life followed a similar pattern. I was with a Chinese guy for a long time, but he was half Chinese, half Dutch, and always seemed to dissociate from the Asian side of himself. Growing up, whenever his grandma and grandpa, who ran a Chinese restaurant, made dinner, they always had to order him a pizza on the side. After him came the Russian. We were co-workers. My desk happened to be near the kitchenette, so I devised a foolproof plan to get his attention. I spent the previous evening peeling purple beets, browning beef, and chopping up dill to make a perfect pot of borscht. And coincidentally, of course, I was eating the aforementioned borscht while he was warming up his lunch in the microwave the next day. I asked him for his feedback on my recipe as I not so innocently passed him my spoon. I wasn't expecting him to say, it needs more cabbage. Nevertheless, he was my boyfriend two months later. Eventually, I met my husband, Eddie. Growing up in Dublin, he gave up a lot in order for us to be together and build a life in Canada. In return, I've learned to make Guinness stew with cheddar dumplings, sourced out all our local butchers for black pudding to cook a classic Irish fry for breakfast, and converted from my beloved cream of Earl Grey to Barry's tea. Throughout my adulthood, I never thought much of Filipino food outside of family gatherings, which was the only place I would find myself eating it. I thought I had left that part of myself behind. I thought I had finally made it as a so-called Canadian. Then, my Lola died. She never spoke much English. I can only remember a handful of conversations we ever had together, but I can still taste her cooking in my memory. There was one dish in particular she made that I loved the most. Full head-on shrimp swimming in a broth of coconut milk, ginger, and garlic. I would fill one bowl with rice, the other with the shrimp. As I gleefully sucked the heads off the shrimp with one hand, I would peel the meat off the shell with the other and eat it with a handful of rice. I would scoop this all into my mouth using my fingers. I didn't even know what it was called, only how it made me feel. It was one of those rare moments when I truly felt Filipino. After my Lola's death, I knew I wanted to make this dish myself. Yet I waited for almost an entire year before I did. After a lifetime of rejecting Filipino culture, would it welcome me back? Eventually, I would FaceTime my mother one evening and ask her what the name of the dish was. Ginatang hipan, she said, as if the question was as simple as asking for the time. I asked her how Lola used to make it. She said she didn't know. Lola never used recipes. So with some help from Google, I was able to put together an ingredient list and recipe. 45 minutes later, dinner was served. It definitely didn't taste like my Lola's. The shrimp were too big, the broth a bit too liquidy. It would take time and effort to get the recipe right. But sitting at the table that night, watching my husband eat with his bare hands, both my heart and my stomach were full.
Is there anything more emblematic of Canadians than the maple leaf? It's on their flag. It's the mascot of one of their oldest hockey teams. And it seems like if you know a Canadian expat, no matter how long they've been away from Canada, you'll still find a few maple leaf stamped items in their possession. Maple trees and maple syrup are a way of life in Canada and have been since long before colonizers built cities there. But with the continuing threat of climate change, that relationship with the trees will be changing. Janelle Carlson has some thoughts on that. Here's her story, The Mighty Maple. We don't just make food. Food makes us. This is the wisdom behind the old maxim, let food be thy medicine and medicine be thy food. More recently, we are learning, or relearning, perhaps, that food can also make us sick as research into the negative impacts of ultra-processed food is beginning to show its links to illnesses like diabetes, cancer, and depression. That's the hard scientific answer, and it's true, but what is missing from the equation is how our food ties us to time and place, the other side of how it helps us make us who we are. Don't believe me? Consider the case of the maple trees and the peoples who have grown up around them. One of the benefits of growing up near the Canadian border has to be access to maple everything. Maple syrup, of course, but also my beloved maple candies and maple soda. Maples tie us in the north together and to our homes in a way we don't realize until we leave or until they are suddenly no longer there. Maples are formers and binders of memory. Growing up, I remember a neighbor tapping the tree in his yard. Then there were the high school field trips to watch the sugaring that took place at the local reserve. Even today, there are churches that make their own maple syrup for pancake dinners. And of course, we can be utter snobs about our consumption. My great aunt, for example, swore that Canadian maples made infinitely better maple syrup and on at least one occasion made the trek to the border, returning with lovely leaf-shaped syrup bottles as Christmas presents in the years before you needed a passport. Others argue that local is always better, and so, perhaps unfairly, maple syrup from Vermont often receives a look askance at the grocery store. For those of us who could not afford the real stuff, there were always substitutes, but the thing was, you always knew they were substitutes. Again, that's the thing about food. It's hardly ever just food. Food, at its best and its worst, means something. It is a linkage between past, present, and future. It's also a tie to the place where it was produced and consumed. In terms of maples and the goodies they allow us to make, it is also about how we learn our environment. More specifically, how we learn to interact with the trees. It takes work and knowledge of the weather, the different kinds of maples, how to tap, and the temperature needed to create maple syrup versus maple sugar versus a burnt mess. But if you, like my neighbor once did, tap your own trees, you will also realize that some trees will consistently produce more. That maybe your time would be better spent on one tree versus another. Maybe if you have kids and grandkids, you will teach them the work and knowledge they need and you'll introduce them to that one tree and it will become doubly special. It was links like these that colonialism interrupted. After all, this relationship between trees and the people who live around them predates the United States and Canada. It was indigenous nations who first developed these ties to maples and the knowledge that allowed the sweetness of maple sugar to enter the world. 
much, much later, the act of maple sugaring became one of the few indigenous traditions that settlers would assimilate rather than disregard or even attempt to exterminate. Maple sugaring would go on to become a tradition that tied new occupants to the land and cultures they encountered, even as the settler governments of the United States and Canada pushed those families who had originally done the work and safeguarded the trees onto reserves. But the maples, like the indigenous peoples, would remain and continue to mark the land and the new cultures that sprang up in the north, even as maple leaves became identity builders and markers of a new Canadian nation. Importantly, our relationship with maples is a cultural artifact. Growing and tapped trees remains a living tradition even today. And Ojibwe author Stacy Lola Druyard recounts how the act of maple tapping and sugaring should be a sacred tie between past and present and the gifts we receive from our local ecosystem. I suppose this is a little bit similar to how I think about it too. When I stop at the farmer's market to buy oodles of goodies made from our maples, the ones I drive past in the fall, the ones that support people I know, the ones that, if we're very lucky, my son will visit during a sugaring the way I and my family before me has done. These trees mean something more than what can be encapsulated in what they produce. These trees that are ours and are not, with their history that stretches long into the past while being so firmly rooted in the present. However, like so many of the other sacred ecosystems left around the world, maples and our relationship to them are shifting due to climate change. As the Farmer's Almanac notes, maple sugaring requires cold winters, like those made famous by Laura Ingalls Wilder and Little House in the Big Woods. But winter nights, even in Wisconsin, are not as cold as they used to be. This has already had a direct impact on the production of true maple-related everything, as 59% of producers have seen the sugaring season shorten and warmer summers lessen the amount of sugar maples produce, as well as the amount of carbon that they store. Worse for the maples themselves, the lack of snowpack can damage their roots and reduce the ability of trees' shoots to grow. Then there is the unknown impact of the Canadian wildfires. We don't know how this change will look like in the future, but we do know that the maple range will likely be forced to shift northwards and that the maple sugaring will go with them. And while we know how that may impact large-scale production, we have yet to reckon with the cultural shifts that this change may bring if we lose our connection to this understated marker of time and place. I don't know if we can miraculously halt climate change. The selfish child in me wants to ask if there is a way to save this one beautiful thing. I am not an influential scientist or a billionaire who has a foundation at my beck and call. This is not a save the maples, save the world sort of thing. The maples will most likely be fine, even if the sugaring will change. But at this moment, I would like to appreciate all the ways that the mighty maples have marked out home. Sarah Jenkins reading Janelle Carlson's The Mighty Maple. You can find that story and all of our backstories on our webpage, dirty-spoon.com. And while you're there, subscribe to our Patreon so we can continue to publish stories like these. Strong
Thanksgiving can be a time of tension for a great many Americans. It's a rare time when family members and strangers alike, who have little to nothing in common except having been born in association with one another, gather to try to make polite conversation while avoiding talk of politics, religion, or any elephants in the room. But that certainly isn't the case for everyone. For writer Sumitra Matai and her family, Thanksgiving was always a celebratory time. That is, until her husband decided to try his hand at baking. Here's her story, The Coconut Cream Pie That Stole Thanksgiving. I was in my early teens when I began baking at Thanksgiving, creating apple, pecan, and blueberry pies for my extended family. For many years, we celebrated the holiday at my mother's house with my aunts, uncles, and cousins. My mother and her sisters had all migrated from Guiana, South America, moving to Canada, England, and Jamaica, before finally settling within a five-mile radius of one another in central New Jersey. We were a small but sturdy network in a foreign land. My mother, a Hindu vegetarian, didn't just tolerate the turkey at the epicenter of the meal. In the ultimate gesture of assimilation, she prepared it for the rest of us. As busy as she was hosting, cooking, and cleaning, she didn't protest when I assumed pie duty. I had discovered baking during a brief stint as a Girl Scout in the third grade. I remember standing on a step stool at the kitchen counter, reading the instructions for an apple pie from the Girl Scout handbook. I'd grown up watching my mother cook, but this was one of the first times I had ever followed a recipe. As my mother helped me to assemble the ingredients, they struck me as being disparate and unrelated. The powdery white flour, the pale dollops of vegetable shortening, the ice water, and sliced apples. How could all these elements amount to something whole? Pulling the finished pie out of the oven an hour later in that warm, cinnamon-scented finale, I felt as odd as a scientist in a laboratory. The alchemy of the transformation was addictive. In a few years, I was baking my way through my mother's cookbooks, most of which were secondhand, and wore the patina of many years of experimentation. As a chubby kid with a penchant for sweets, I justified my intake of cookies if I made them myself. Even as I tried to diet and lose weight, I couldn't help but return to the comfort of the oven and the gratification of baking. There was no manual for the emotional turmoil of adolescence and my parents' divorce, but I found great relief in the predictable format of a recipe. No matter what was going on, if I followed this set of instructions, there would be something delicious to eat when the timer went off. In darker moments, I ate alone, hunched and binging. But more often, baking was a way to connect with friends and family. As our household's resident baker, Thanksgiving was a much-anticipated stage. That said, I could admit that not all of my creations were showstoppers. There were a few stiff crusts and watery fruit pies along the way. But I was proud of my efforts and endeavored to perfect the recipes year after year. I was especially delighted by the ceremonial cutting of the pies while everyone eagerly looked on, choosing which ones they wanted to try first. One of my uncles always took a sliver of each kind heaped with vanilla ice cream. As everyone ate, I loved listening to the chatter around the table. Did you try the blueberry? It's amazing. Have the pecan. It's worth the calories. Tradition shifted in my 20s as my mother, sisters, and I began to invite our friends for the holiday meal, including my boyfriend, who would later become my husband, and several friends from college. During those years, I made two of each pie so that our guests could enjoy slices for breakfast as well as dessert over the four-day weekend. By the time my boyfriend and I moved in together, 
I was reading food blogs, collecting cookbooks, and obsessed with the Barefoot Contessa. In that era of my young adulthood, I was regularly experimenting in my own kitchen, from red velvet cake made with actual beets to a triple berry bunt cake I still make for my mother's birthday every year. I didn't have the touch for fancy decorating or the patience for pastry. My specialty was and still is comfort food, one bowl wonders that are both a creative outlet and a form of stress relief. Even now, as I write, there is a loaf of pumpkin bread cooling on my countertop. The room is filled with the scent of cinnamon, ginger, and cardamom, my secret ingredient, and one I might use in a future pumpkin pie. After my husband and I got married in 2014, our Thanksgiving tradition evolved to include my in-laws, who flew up from Nassau, Bahamas. My husband had long since taken over the making of the turkey, which he brined in a cooler the night before. My mother-in-law baked macaroni and cheese in the largest glass dish in our cupboards. My father-in-law, like my late grandfather before him, sat at the head of the table, drinking my mother's homemade chai, telling stories and playing checkers. At our first Thanksgiving together, my husband decided to make his grandmother's coconut pie. He was more of a cook than a baker, but this dish was a family favorite, and he was determined to make it just like her. While he had watched his grandmother bake the pie in Nassau many times, he had to call her for the specifics, when to add the vanilla, how long to beat the egg yolks. Over the phone, however, she was reluctant to share her process. A quiet but wry matriarch, I imagined her sitting on the floral printed sofa covered with plastic in her living room, every surface filled with framed photographs of her children and grandchildren. It probably amused her to give her second eldest grandson a hard time. Typical of their dynamic, he played dumb and cracked jokes until he managed to wheedle the prized recipe. Unlike American coconut cream pie, which called for a package of dried sweetened coconut flakes, the Bahamian version required an actual coconut. My husband bought two from the local grocery store in case one had spoiled during its long journey from the tropics to suburban New Jersey. There was no way of knowing if the flesh was good until he broke them open on the driveway with hard thuds, his hands cold from the November chill. Once the coconuts were split into rough shards, he spent the better part of an hour using the box grater, nicking his fingers when the pieces got too small. With a wooden spoon, he folded the fluffy snow-white flakes into a creamy mix of condensed milk, egg yolks, vanilla, and melted butter. When the pie came out of the oven, it looked like a pale yellow moon. Our first Thanksgiving with my in-laws was special. It was their first taste of this all-American holiday, served, ironically, by a team of immigrants. There was fresh excitement around my mother's dining room table, which was extended with two extra leaves to accommodate the group. Break my plate, my father-in-law joked as we served him. I soon learned that the meaning of this Bahamian phrase was to load up his plate with so much food that the plate would actually break. An exaggeration, to be sure, but not impossible in this meal-centric holiday. Dinner was a success, but the ceremonial pie cutting went differently than it had in previous years. Instead of being excited to try all the options, our guests were only hungry for the coconut pie. Though my in-laws had for many years enjoyed my banana bread, carrot cake, and blueberry scones, they had no interest in my pies, which languished on the table, almost intact, save for a pity slice here and there. The coconut pie transported the whole table to the islands, and everyone, 
even my own mother, agreed it was the best pie they had ever tasted. As I listened to their praise, I tried to hide my embarrassment by having a slice, but each bite lodged in my throat. My ego was too bruised to enjoy its creamy texture and the sweet but not too sweet coconut-rich flavor. As rejected as I felt, I couldn't relay my disappointment to my husband, not wanting to seem petty and immature. But as we prepared for the next Thanksgiving, I braced for another humiliating scene. My husband doubled up on coconut pies, and I still baked a few. But my mood was sour, accompanied by passive-aggressive muttering under my breath about how no one wanted my pies anyway. My husband tried to reason with me. Are you really upset about pie right now? To which I replied, of course not, and continued huffing around the kitchen. This charade continued for a few years. With the addition of our own young children, I was relieved to be excused from the bulk of the holiday baking. Coconut pie continued to reign supreme, and I was too exhausted to care. My contribution to the dessert menu diminished from a full repertoire to a single obligatory apple crisp. Then, in September of 2022, our lives forever changed with the unexpected passing of my father-in-law. Deeply saddened by this sudden loss, I couldn't fathom going through the motions of another Thanksgiving. As November approached, I imagined us weeping over plates of turkey, sweet potatoes, and green beans, and decided we needed a new plan. That fall, in honor of my father-in-law, who loved to travel, we broke tradition and flew to Paris. It was the first time in my life I wasn't at home for the holiday, the first time I wasn't cooking, baking, and cleaning all day. With my husband, my mother, my mother-in-law, brothers-in-law, and our children, we ate our Thanksgiving meal at an Indian restaurant around the corner from our Airbnb in the Marais. Instead of pie, we feasted on French pastries for dessert. The menu and circumstances were vastly different from previous years, but we were that much more grateful to be together. Less than a year later, my husband's grandmother, the originator of the infamous coconut pie, passed away. In the wake of this loss, I'm thankful that my husband has learned her recipe. It's one of the few ways we can keep her memory alive. Mother of 13 children, grandmother and great-grandmother to many, her work ethic and culinary mastery is embodied in this dish, which may well survive for generations. The cycle was as complete and enduring as the shape of the pie itself, that perfect, pale, yellow moon. Danielle Allen reading Sumitra Matai's story, The Coconut Pie That Stole Thanksgiving. You can find it and all of our backstories on our webpage, dirty-spoon.com. The Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is made possible by our underwriter, The Marketplace Restaurant. Serving Asheville for over 40 years, The Marketplace is Asheville's original farm-to-table restaurant. The Marketplace strives to bring you the best of what our region has to offer farmed by our neighbors. For more information on our underwriters or to support us yourself by subscribing to our Patreon, visit dirty-spoon.com.
The Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is a production of Dirty Spoon Media. All of the text from our stories is available on our webpage, dirty-spoon.com. There, you can also catch up on past episodes, as well as subscribe to the show and help us keep going through our Patreon. The incredible artwork on that page is by Corinne Pease, Katrin Dosa, Ashley Icomedes, Kelly Manier, Garnet Fisher, Paul Choi, Marianne Pompano, Claire Winkler, and Alex Knighton. Music in this episode by Cleaners from Venus, Ducks Limited, James Ellis Ford, Samana, Acid Arab, and Voxlo, and the Blue Dot Sessions. Lexi Harvey is our editor-at-large, sources our stories, and handles our website and marketing. Jonathan Ammons is our editor-in-chief, handles the music selection, production, recording, audio editing, and writes some of the original music. Tune in next month for more stories, conversations, and music from the people who shape what we consume right here on the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour from WPVM. <laughs>